Kevin McCarthy's victory and Anthony Fauci's denial. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by Philip Phil Klein, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD. Michael Brendan Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is CEI's new podcast, Free the Economy. More about that in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, while many at National Review have been treating Tucker Carlson like a pinata. You have come to his defense externally, internally, every opportunity you have, but you wrote, wrote, wrote a piece uh, defending him. And we spent a lot of time on Tucker in the first episode this week, so we don't want to go on for 30 minutes about this. But since you have a, a different point of view and feel very strongly about it, just wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, tell our listeners why you're, you're pro-Tucker. Well, I'm pro-Tucker. I mean, first of all, there, there's a personal reason, which is he's literally the first guy I met in Washington when I came off the bus who treated me like human being when I had nothing to offer him. There's like seven people in in Washington or in this whole business about whom I feel the same way, you know, and they, they run the gamut from Tucker to David Frum to yourself, Rich and Charlie. Well, we, we, you, you, you were, you were, a, you were a figure when we, when we came your way and, and this is a really important uh, personal quality of, of people who are established to, uh, to care about people that, that no one know uh, or no one knows yet. That no, no, and 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 that can't help you uh, in any way, and that that's not a that's a rare thing in Washington. But uh, Tucker was, I think, the the misunderstanding of Tucker is that he is somehow creating populism from his perch at Fox News. That like this would all just go away. Um, if, if he went away or that it'll diminish substantially, uh, and listen, I think it, it could, it could take the pressure off of, of a few people, but, uh, it's not going away. Um, he's reflecting something to this point that he kind of is taking ideas that are already out there and bringing them to a larger audience. Um, he's also been, because he has no respect for the Republican establishment, He's also kind of been useful for conservatives in in fighting the Republican establishment when when they're on the other side. So no one else on Fox would have gone after Asa Hutchinson and Spencer Cox on the issue of transgender s- surgeries from yep, that was, for minors. That was, that was valuable. He was also very pro the uh, turmoil around McCarthy's speakership, which turned right. out to be basically and right. His, um, you know, you could say, oh, he's. He's too untrusting of the institutions, but in an age when the institutions are failing so often, that has led him to be right faster than other people. He was ahead of the curve, things like the vaccines not being effective against transmission of COVID and therefore there being no rationale for mandating them at a state level. Or the lab leak theory, he was early on that. You know, we were also early on that, thank God. But that's all been tremendously useful for Fox, for, con- for conservatism, 
And I think it will continue to be when where, wherever he lands. Now, there are lines Tucker crosses that I don't cross, even when we agree on an issue. You know, like we agree, we're, we're basically in simpatico on the Ukraine war, but I don't call Zelensky like a criminal or, or make fun of his dress sense. You know, I wouldn't draw my views on vaccines from Alex Berenson uh, the way the way Tucker does. But that part of that is also um, the nature of broadcast is you are are broadcasting to a very large popular audience and you're going to do it in the broadest, boldest colors possible. And um, so I'll miss his show. I mean, I, I didn't watch it every night. I caught it on the clips. And um, I think I think people will be surprised at how influential he remains. I mean, I people say, oh, it's the Fox News time slot that matters. And it does matter. 8 p.m. on Fox is an important uh, platform in media still to this day, even with, you know, 20% of people cutting cords in the last six years. It's still an important perch. But unlike, you know, Bill O'Reilly, who preceded him, Tucker's clips don't just get broadcast and then disappear forever. They traveled on social media. They traveled on YouTube. They traveled on Instagram through Twitter. Yeah, and like dr- drove coverage and people felt and, and, and yeah, and then the drove Pentagon media coverage. was responding and Chuck Schumer was responding and right. And so I think that 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 may continue to be the case if he emerges from whatever contract negotiations he has and does something independent. I think he would immediately be number two after Joe Rogan. And and he'll still have influence and he'll still drive coverage. So, Maddie, how much of MBD's argument do you buy? Yeah, I, th- I think that's I'm broadly sympathetic to it. I'm obviously less ideological than some of my my colleagues and, and certainly my criticisms are less ideological. But I do I do think that if you just look at the character of, of Tucker Carlson and who he is as a person, I think he's got this rare quality of genuine detachment Um I mean, political detachment, partisan detachment, but also just a kind of detachment from things that, that drive most people. So success and popularity and, and, and all of this stuff. And I think he's he's shown a willingness to sort of say things that upset people, which isn't a virtue in itself, but it's it's certainly impressive. I think he's he's brave even when he's, he's wrong about things. Um, and he's obviously always stressed this very, you know, his... his appreciation for first things and the most important things in life religion and family and it's interesting that he he didn't even really spend much time with his colleagues in fact that's one interesting part of the abby grossberg suit his ex-booker who's saying he created a hostile work environment you know she's she's never actually met tucker carlson he deliberately kept himself at a distance from from these people and and was was perhaps too honest about um, his contempt even for potentially his employers and, and the media and being part of that apparatus. And uh, he is definitely, I think, can be very uncharitable and, and can um, be very nasty if you're on the wrong side of him and um, sometimes sort of borderline just misanthropic, um, <laughs> to, to be honest. But it, again, you know, you, you feel, I think for a lot of his viewers, they feel like, they're they're seeing someone honest because he he also will admit to his uh his feelings and his shortcomings and certainly how he sees them he'll talk about you know he he shouldn't have made fun of this person or he he was obviously wrong about the Iraq war and there's there's various theories about how that plays into his general 
uh, skepticism, hyper skepticism and distrust of authority and everything is he feels he was he was spectacularly wrong about this. But I, I think he's genuinely unpredictable in, in his opinions and, and what he's going to say. And I think that's one of the reasons he made such great TV. And one of, one of the reasons he's probably got a lot more to say exactly where and how, I'm not sure. But, I, you know, I've, I've also enjoyed watching his clips. So, Phil, the, the problem I have with what we've heard from MBD and Maddie, I would say two things. Uh, with with, uh, with MBD, it, it's... I think a, a posture of, of radical doubt is is fine, and some instances absolutely called for. And uh, the problem is, but the problem is that if if you're just going to go against what the establishment is saying all the time, it, the establishment might be wrong fifty percent of the time, might be wrong seventy percent of the time, might be wrong ninety percent of the time. You know, pick pick your percentage. But if you're counter it all the time. On the other side of the ledger, you're going to be wrong 10% of the time or 30% of the time or 50% of the time. And I, I don't think Tucker was showed enough care about that and would, on most things, wouldn't go back and correct things he was uh, wrong about. And as MBD points out, it meant he was right early about a, a lot of elements of the, the pandemic. But he's also been wrong early about a bunch of stuff and, and we never get corrections as MBD points out, this meant he was right early on the pandemic, but also means he's been wrong early on some stuff. And we very often w wouldn't get the, the record corrected when it emerged. He was wrong. And then with, with Maddie's point in, you know, in many respects, this this devil may care. I, you know, I, I just I'm going to say it and I don't care. Attitude absolutely characterizes Tucker and is Maddie's right is a huge part of his appeal. But you know, on something that really mattered in terms of it would have hurt his his audience and his ratings. You know, Trump and the uh, post election stuff, and, and January six, he he hid the ball. Yeah, I think that's right. And I came across um, a video that resurfaced of Tucker Carlson last month talking about how ashamed he was of his promotion of the Iraq War and how he. He regretted not being more skeptical of that and many other things. And if you look at uh, Tucker's trajectory, he came out of the conservative movement um, and you know, in Crossfire where he was representing the right side. He, he ended up sort of parroting the party line uh, on a lot of things. And then with experience, he felt like, well, a lot of the the things that he was promoting in it turned out to be false. And a lot of the people who he had dismissed as sort of fringy type people um, ended up being proven correct. And so that made him be more willing to indulge people on the fringes because they say, hmm, this is interesting. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe they're seeing something that me, uh, who grew up in sort of an elite background and, and lit, spent a long time inside the Beltway, um, that I wouldn't see and it wouldn't occur to me. And But I think that, as you noted, he took it too far. And too often that led him to indulge fringe people and fringe ideas that shouldn't have been indulged. And at the same time, because he had previously had many, uh, several shows canceled and didn't want to be another cancellation victim, he also 
wouldn't really say something that would legitimately challenge his audience. So it's not necessarily brave to say a lot of things that challenge the elites, but then back off um, just coming out and saying it's not true that the 2020 election was stolen. Now, he might not come out and say, go full hog and full Trump and say the election was totally rigged, Trump won fair and square, Biden's not a legitimate president. But he wouldn't say the converse, that Biden was legitimately elected, because then he'd be worried about being branded a sellout. And so um, I think that to um, MBD's point, it's true that I assume if he lands on some other platform or does some sort of independent uh, venture, he'll be wildly successful. Uh, But where I think he loses influence is that there are a lot of people who are basically Fox addicts, um, self-proclaimed. They will just keep Fox on all the time and watch, you know, their primetime lineup. It's just in the background, it's around. And so there were a lot of people that Tucker was speaking with who may not be completely on board with his vision of conservatism and his vision for where the Republican Party wants to go. And I think unlike Bill O'Reilly, Tucker's show was much more driven by a mission to reorient conservatives and the uh, Republican Party in a way that it's much less like Paul Ryan and much more like J.D. Vance. And there are a certain number of voters and Republicans who are very into Fox News who their only exposure to arguments questioning the pro-Ukraine narrative, uh, questioning, you know, free market ideology, that that would be their only exposure to it, to the the idea that you're not going to hear another Fox host do a long monologue about how hedge funds um, run by vulture capitalists are destroying small town America. And so if he goes off on his own, he might make a lot of money appealing to people who really see him as you know, untethered now and free to say whatever he wants and uh, a beacon of truth. However, I think it's those sort of normie, more conventional Republicans that he's not going to reach as much because it's going to be more of a selective audience. So MBDX question to you. We've we've seen very early, you know, early days here, literally uh, what's happening at the, in the 8, 8 p.m. slot. And there's just you know, there's not there's not a permanent new new host yet, but Monday it was 2.6 million, which wasn't you know it was like a tick down from where Tucker was on Friday in his last broadcast, and you know down some from Tucker's average, you know three something or or above three to 2.6. That's not terrible. Then it was 2.7. Then we're recording Friday. Yesterday it was 1.3. So speaking of being accountable when we're wrong. This surprises me. It's down more than I would have expected. And there's obviously been a a firestorm 
on the on the populist right. You know, everyone is is with Tucker and blasting away at at Fox News. So it's been quite the reaction. So the exit question to you, MBD, is the Fox ratings drop will be short term, medium term, or permanent in some form or, or other. Permanent won't be. It won't stay as low as it is now, but nobody was ever going to get nobody that they have a chance of bringing on is, is as talented a broadcaster as Tucker has become and is likely to bring in the numbers in the key demographic, uh, you know, the 25 to 55 year old, 24 to 55 year old men. In fact, they're down 75% in that demographic uh, with Tucker off the air now. So that that's never going to be rebuilt. And there's just a long-term trend against cable news and a long-term trend for alternative media. So, like, I, I just think as the the septuagenarian audience for Fox continues to shrink, there's an audience of people who are in their 50s and 60s who are learning how to use podcasts and learning how to uh, find alternate sources of media on, you know, on streaming television. And that's, that's where the audience is going to go. Maddie Kearns. Short term, medium term, permanent. I think it'll be medium term. I think, in, in some ways, he is irreplaceable. Certainly, I, I, t- I take all your your points about the examples where he he went too far, or he he was dishonest, or or didn't cover or go over his mistakes. But um, I do I do think he's a, a genuinely independent thinker and and sort of original original thinker, and I th- I think that's that's a very rare very rare gift and so can't really fill that hole properly Phil Klein? I would say that it's if we're talking about are they going to recover somewhat I'd say medium term eventually they'll settle upon uh, some of the uproar will die down and they'll settle on some host that's amenable to a broad enough spectrum of people I don't think that uh, it, They'll, they'll recover totally Tucker's ratings. I think the idea that, you know, you could plug anyone into the 8 p.m. time slot and they'll just crush it just because people tune into to, uh, Fox. I mean, that might get you to, as we've seen, like a million, a million and a half maybe. But that's not going to get you consistently well over three million. And I, so I think that it's sort of going to be permanently down from Tucker. Tucker was just from, you know, intelligent and just a talented TV personality, just in terms of generating controversy and interest and entertaining his audience and, and so forth. But also there was a broad swath of his audience, as I alluded to earlier, who, couldn't get anywhere else what they were getting from Tucker Carlson, uh, certainly not on Fox News. The remaining hosts are tiered toward sort of more conventional conservatism, and I don't, I don't think that anyone. So, so I think that there was a segment of people who could only watch Tucker on Fox, and I think that the only Tucker people won't come back. And I'm not sure that there's another personality out there who could quite galvanize people to to his level. Yeah, 
my take has been that the the loss and kind of influence at 8 p.m. will be permanent because as MBD and Maddie have pointed out, I mean, Tucker's just like hugely talented broadcaster and um, very talented writer and original thinker and all, all that. That, that, that bundle of, of talent is, is hard to uh, or impossible to replace. But I, I thought the ratings would, would bounce back. You know, the, the, the case that Fox can just plug in anyone is based on the show The Five, you know, because Roger Ailes used to joke that he called it The, the Five because he thought about it for five minutes. You know, Glenn Beck was leaving and they're shifting things around. It's like, well, why don't we just have an ensemble show and, and have these these five random people? But it's that's a very entertaining show, though. The cast has changed over time, but it, it remains. Uh, there's just something about it that that works. So the, these numbers that this week have, have made me think, well, maybe I was wrong about the ratings. And I, I still I'll say medium term, but with a with a, a huge element of doubt, maybe it'll be uh permanent and they'll never as reliably be as high as they were under Tucker at 8 p.m. With that, let's pause and hear from our sponsor this episode. I want to tell you about a new podcast from our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. It's called Free the Economy and it's about how we can all be happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control from legalizing a gig economy to the perils of ESG and what true diversity in the workplace looks like each week. CEI's Free the Economy podcast brings you up to speed on news you can use and welcomes experts in their field to have honest and candid conversations about how these policies and more shape our economy and society. America has the greatest economy in the world, but it could be even stronger if we embraced a free society where innovation and entrepreneurship were encouraged and not shackled with bureaucratic controls, check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash free the economy. So, Phil Klein, we have the debt ceiling crisis that is inching further. This week, Kevin McCarthy got a uh, unexpected many quarters victory when he managed to pass a Republican plan out of the house the white house is kind of assuming this this is just will never happen and we can point to republican dysfunction and maintain our stake in the ground that we're not going to negotiate with these crazy and incompetent people but with some hiccups and with some last minute changes with, with these things that the way it always goes is the leader says like we're we're not making any more changes you know no more concessions no more negotiations and they end up making some changes uh, at the end, in this case, they they left uh, ethanol subsidies harmless, which isn't great uh, great policy, but got him the votes he needed. He lost four, which is exactly the amount he could lose. And this has a bunch of uh, work requirements. This measure and would freeze uh, most spending at fiscal year twenty twenty two levels, which is not going to strike most people as uh, irrational or unreasonable. What do you make of it? So I think two things. So I think first, credit where due. A lot of us, including myself, thought that one problem with McCarthy as speaker having to go 15 rounds to become speaker was that he'd have very limited power and control over his caucus. And... One of the dangers is in that is that in a high-stakes standoff such as the debt ceiling fight, basically you need to be able to put something on the table that's your plan and pass it with your people and say, look, we have something that can pass 
And so then you toss the ball into the other team's court. And so the there was a big question about whether he was going to even be able to do that, which would have left Republicans in a much weaker negotiating position. But again, with some backroom arm twisting and some concessions, he was able to get a plan across the, uh, the finish line of the House. However, with that said, I think that they, there still is a very big long ter- longer-term issue for McCarthy, which is that Democrats have been pretty hell-bent on saying, we're not going to negotiate on the debt ceiling, that the idea that they don't think that it should be even up for discussion. They view it as a major mistake that in 2011 they made concessions and they don't want to set the precedent that you turn the debt ceiling into a hostage situation. Uh, They agreed to debt ceiling increases under Trump and and they think it should just be sort of routine. Um, Now, they'll probably have to Renit back off of that because the debt ceiling is going to have to get raised at some point. So there will have to be some sort of deal. The problem for McCarthy is that the deal that they strike eventually with Biden and Schumer is going to be much worse for Republicans than the one that just passed the House. They're not going to get anything close to what uh, they just passed. At best, they'll get some sort of face-saving concession so that they could claim that they that Biden said they would get nothing and they got something. But that something is going to have to pass with a lot of Democratic votes. He's going to have a certain number of Republicans who are going to vote with him, but a lot of people, he's, he's going to have to you know, maybe over 100 Democrats he's going to need to be able to pass whatever is negotiated. Um, And so I think that's going to be a bigger problem, too. What happens to his speakership when he has to pass some sort of crap sandwich with Democratic votes? Yeah, so this is uh, is a victory, but it's a very preliminary preliminary victory. Matty? Yeah, I think it's a victory, certainly in terms of unity and being be able to actually get Republicans to work together on something. And I think it clearly does have Biden on the back foot here. I mean, you had the the White the White House say it's an extreme MAGA wish list when it's just standard fiscal conservatism. And as Joe Manchin has point, pointed out, you know, this is the only bill moving through Congress right now that would prevent default. So you have to come up with something else if you, if you're not happy with this. And I thought it was interesting. You know, George George Will made the point that um, Biden is 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 happy to say that default would be catastrophic. It would lead to political chaos and and locusts and plagues and and, and everything. But but if if he's willing to to say that it's worth risking that because you know of of other priorities that, that are obviously less important than avoiding catastrophe. Um it's just not a it's not a sustainable position. So they're they're going to have to negotiate. I know it looks like he's not right now, but but they're going to have to negotiate. But to Phil's point, what that's actually going to look like and whether it's going to be as good for Republicans as as they're hoping right now it isn't isn't quite so obvious. 
yeah, the position makes no sense as, as you point out in its, its own terms. It, it's a, it the, the these relatively minor budget cuts in the scheme of things would be much worse than this catastrophe that would end America as as we know it. That makes zero sense. And they've actually kind of their position also is now kind of a process position. We'll talk to you about it these cuts in 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 the regular budget process, but we won't talk to you about it now. And and I, I don't think that that argument is going to get much traction either. So MBD, we, we were talking in the Tucker segment about the, the fight over McCarthy's speakership, although it was ugly and a couple of these guys were true um, nihilists uh, and ended up being productive. You know, you got the House Freedom Caucus got more representation, uh, especially on the important rules committee. So in, in working out this measure, you know, McCarthy, the leadership, they're sitting around the table with more of these quote unquote crazies, which causes the crazies actually to be, at least at the moment, more responsible to be part of the process, to be engaged in these closed door negotiations, which are supposed to be the worst thing in the world, but obviously are inherent to uh, to governing and how Washington works. And at the moment, you have a pretty good outcome. Yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, what looked to us and probably was, in fact, total desperation on McCarthy's part to get the speakership, which is, okay, I'm going to include Oh my God, I'm going to include Thomas Matsey in the rules committee. Like, you know, this libertarian bomb thrower. All right, Chip Roy, I'm going to bring you in here. You know, like things that would have been unthinkable under Boehner and probably would have been seen as totally destructive does seem to actually, yeah, as you said, be working out like a song uh, and getting guys like Massey to be involved in leadership has gotten them to act like leaders and, and start whipping votes. Um, you know, this, this, this bill only had four Republican votes against it. That's all it could have without falling, falling down altogether. But it is, it gives McCarthy some more legitimacy when he negotiates with the white house because he's, he's demonstrated he can get a majority, he can get a majority and he can get a, a debt ceiling bill through, through the house that's not nothing uh, in this town. And, and you know, like he should be proud of himself. And I'm, I, I have to say, you know, you took accountability in the last segment over uh, Fox's rating. I'll take accountability over this. I never thought this would happen. I thought this was going to be a disaster right on the launch pad. So Maddie Kearns, exit question to you. At the end of this debt ceiling process, Republicans will get nothing. We'll get something. We'll get everything said with no accountability i will not <laughs> not be answering for this i'm going to say something mbd something but but even the question is will they take it yeah right exactly <laughs> they'll get something but can they take something so phil klein you've already declared yourself you're a something person something that it's again going to pass with a lot of democratic votes yeah it's it's something it's uh something that's going to be less than the the something they they uh they want and the, the, there will be a question whether Kevin McCarthy can survive it 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 may be that he has more in, in endurance than some people have thought just because there's there's not a good there's not a good alternative but the, 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 this is the, these these are the good days it's going to be uh it's going to get the, the white house is going to have to back down in terms of no negotiations but when when push comes to shove and we're right against the deadline or probably over it it's it's going to be uh the sausage sausage making is going to be 
no fun. With that, let's pause for another message. The National Review Institute's William F. Buckley Jr. Communications Workshop is scheduled for June 23 and 24. This program is intended for students from across the political spectrum seeking careers in the communications fields. Come learn about the Buckley style of discourse. Our stellar speaker lineup includes Irshad Manji, Cade Cole James, and our own Jay Nordlinger. Tickets are available on NRI's website. That's nrinstitute.org. That's nrinstitute.org. Join NRI or pass it along to a student you no. So, Maddie Kearns, it turns out, despite what we all thought we were witnessing for two years or so, that Anthony Fauci had nothing to do with the pandemic response. I don't know why he was ever on cable TV or on radio or the subject of uh, glowing magazine profiles when he was totally irrelevant. He was the chief epidemiologist held up as a hero, but no one was listening to him and he wasn't giving any advice. <laughs> so he had nothing to do with, with any of this, which, which obviously is an enormous uh, implicit concession that major things went wrong. Yeah, it's 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 a concession that major things went wrong, but it's um again a dodging accountability. And the the outrageous thing about this is it's one thing to sort of try rewrite history when you've ended up with egg on your face, but it's another thing to try and rewrite history when you were on the record saying things which can be very easily pointed out. So I think it was James Freeman at the Wall Street Journal kind of pointed out that you don't even have to go beyond the New York Times to see Fauci on record making policy prescriptions that, that go way beyond just public health. I mean, if, if you're, strictly speaking, if, you, if your only concern is public health, if you're just completely monomaniacally concerned with health, then we wouldn't have cars on the road, right? We would say, some scientists would come in and say, look, uh, there's X many traffic accidents every year, like these are unsafe. And we go, oh, okay, let's get the cars off the road. There's countless other examples you could you could call to mind. Of course, you don't look at it like that. You look at the, the economic context, the political context, the social context, and you make um you make calculations about, you know, costs and benefits and and uh, you know some of that includes um risk to human life. Uh, that that is the way that we run society. And so for him to say that he didn't have anything to do with school closures that he um, didn't have anything to do with uh, you know the the, the cost to, to businesses when he's on the record saying recommending these things saying if not people are going to die um, it's just it's just really dishonest um, and uh, and it, it can be easily pointed out as such so I, I don't know where he's getting the audacity to to say this so MBD does this shock you that this latest performance from fauci or is it just par par for the course for you Oh my gosh. It's, it is shocking in that I, I am shocked he ever got to the point in the New York Times of saying that masks work, quote, at the margins, maybe 10%. Because that is an admission. I, I, I mean, that is an admission that most people during most of the pandemic were totally misled about the effectiveness of masks. I mean, there's, there's still people in certain parts of the country wearing them outside, cloth masks outside, and, and thinking they're following the science. No, I know. One of my delivery men, were, it's crazy. And, you know, 
the 10% or at the margins is not a, a, a persuasive number to justify constraining the liberty of a self-governing people, right? Like, that's just like a piece of advice you just give someone. Like, well, you know, this might make a little... You know, if this improves your sleep by 10%, we don't mandate it from the government. Uh, it, I, I find it utterly shocking. But uh, what I don't find shocking is that he then immediately pivoted to blaming, quote, the culture wars for all the agony and stress over masks. And that's just code, in the New York, as our editorial says, that's just code in the New York Times for blaming conservatives. It's, oh, the people that, that noticed that my recommendations didn't match up are the ones to blame. I, I find him a totally unworthy figure for for leadership. I mean, he he takes no responsibility for the words he says, even if they affect millions of people. He he conducts himself with none of the gravity that that felt that there's something ridiculous about being a frontman for Donald Trump's administration at certain points. I actually I don't even begrudge him that feeling. There there was something ridiculous of like standing next to a guy recommending like if we could only get light inside of the bodies of people to, to eradicate the disease. I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I totally get him feeling superior to that person. The problem is he ultimately felt superior to the entire American people and treated them with contempt. And I, I think it's unforgivable. Um, it, it, it is shocking and and the other thing is and something that only kind of dawned on me this week was on the lab leak stuff you know anthony fauci using the cutout with eco health alliance to fund gain of fund research gain of function research in labs like the lab in wuhan china it, it is a characteristic corruption of our age right like Nike moves its shoe factories to China where it can pollute freely and then accepts environmental awards in the United States for cleaning up its act here. And it's the same thing. It's like we are are, are, sh are shipping the dirty work across seas to where it's dangerous and then patting ourselves on the back. I think he's an emblematic figure of an age that will deserve a black mark in the history books. So, Phil, we also had Randy Weingarten testifying for Congress, and she wants it to be known that she she always wanted schools open, just safely, just safely, but, but always wanted them open. It was always clear they, they needed to be open. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, if there were an Olympic medal for gaslighting, I feel like she'd be the, the runaway winner. I mean, look, we all lived through this. It was pretty clear that the unions consistently were the biggest barrier to reopening schools. For months and months, they talked about how it was unsafe when anyone brought up the damage that it was doing. They'd say, kids are resilient. Uh, remote learning is fine. Oh, yeah. Working out <laughs> right. Kids are uh, resilient. And then when that couldn't hold anymore because the clamoring to reopen schools was growing, they pivoted to, well, we want to open schools, but we can only do so under all of these conditions. And they created all of these so-called safety protocols that had to be followed and made all these sorts of unrealistic demands that extended the timeline um, for reopening schools. 
they also bullied the American Academy of Pediatrics to back off its recommendations in terms of school reopenings. They bullied the CDC um, into issuing recommendations for school reopenings, such as social distancing requirements that made it infeasible in many crowded schools to reopen. Uh, I mean, the record is there. We all lived through it, and they should not be able to get away with it. And on the Fauci front, I mean, he's been playing this sort of dance, this sort of bait-and-switch since the beginning of the pandemic, which is that he, he makes... Uh, he says that this is what should happen, that if you do behavior X, it's, it's very risky and it could really spread the, the virus. And if you do behavior Y, we could get through this thing a lot quicker with a lot less loss of life. And he'd go on every TV and saying all sorts of stuff about that. He'd pressure people in cabinet meetings, he'd leak stuff to the media, he'd be all over the place making a case that this is safe and that's not safe. And if you're a public official in that environment, when Fauci is sort of touted as this godlike figure, it's going to be really hard to reject what Fauci is going to say. The, the CDC isn't going to issue guidance way off board from what Fauci is recommending. But then he wants to hide behind, look, all I am is a health official. I don't make any decisions. I just give advice and people who are elected can evaluate that advice versus other things and make their own decisions. But that's nonsense. Everyone knows that's not the role he played. Everyone knows that he was he had de facto dictatorial authority. Um, over COVID policy, um, in effect, um, because every state that, uh, every governor, certainly in blue states, early on, every governor, eventually more in blue states, just would take their cues from Fauci and would wait around until he declared something safe enough to do. (coughs) So I think that it's unfortunate, but we're going to have to spend the rest of our lives correcting the record on this because we lived through it. So, uh, so, so Matt, that's a good segue to the exit question. Conventional opinion will eventually conclude that Fauci was a, a bad actor in terms of the pandemic response, Drove was the driver behind uh, huge policy mistakes during the pandemic, yes or no? Um, probably not, actually. I mean, certainly conservatives feel that way, but I don't really I don't really see that type of accountability in the mainstream. Certainly not the way the New York Times has run this article. And I haven't I haven't checked out their comments section, but no, I th- I think he might he very well might get away with it. MBD. Yeah, a respectable opinion is give us Barabbas. <laughs> Bill Klein. Uh, um, no, I mean, I think it's probably one of your gonna... best exit question answers ever. I mean, <laughs> this grows on me as a, as the seconds pass. 
Sorry, so I think that in, in my view, it's probably going to fall along more partisan lines. I think it's probably going to be something like, you know, the popular narrative that FDR got us out of the depression versus talking about how he extended the depression. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I got to say, yes. I think eventually, I'm not talking months, I'm not talking years, you know, <laughs> a, a decade or two from now, Century. there'll be some, yeah, there'll be some uh, center left book writer who will go do a revisionist history. And I think it will kind of m- move, move things. And uh, although people are very dug in, the, the, the school opening debate, you know, was something that was just one uh, by the the right, you know, and 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 some brave people on the center left who were accused of of wanting to kill kids when when they were raising their hands and saying, oh, maybe this isn't such a good idea. So uh, well, 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 one person on the far left. Yeah. Can you name the person on the far left? RFK Jr., who sold like mil- oh, yeah. millions of books, the real Anthony Fauci. Yeah, well, we'll we we need to talk about RFK Jr. who's at nineteen percent in the uh, Democratic primary see, so see we'll, that's we'll, not we'll respect maybe not respectable opinion right <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe next week so I, i'm a i'm a very very optimistic yes eventually with that let me urge people to sign up for nr plus digital subscription service at nationalview.com your way around our metered paywall your way to see many many fewer annoying ads if you sign up and log in your way if you want to you don't have to but you can to uh, get deeper into the National Review community by commenting on articles and, and blog posts, by uh, getting invitations to exclusive events with our writers and editors and other conservative figures. We have great first-time deals running at any given moment. So if you're not already a member, please consider signing up today, tomorrow, or the day after, or even the day after that, and joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR plus let's hit one last thing really quickly short answer is pure exit question LA Times we had this amazing Biden event with this uh, South South Korean leader who who uh, is a big fan of Don McLean apparently and can can do a pretty uh, <laughs> neat version of American Pie or at least the fir- first couple lines of American Pie better than I can do but uh, at the press availability a press conference, uh, a telephoto lens picked up that uh, Biden had notes that were telling him who to call on. That's not that unusual. That's prearranged. But, you know, a picture of the reporter, her name, her affiliation, and the question which he actually asked. So, MBD, this is the exit question to you. Who is more at blame for this uh, scandal? of the question being provided in advance, the White House for asking for it, insisting on it or, or whatever, or the LA Times for playing along? The LA Times for playing along, for sure. I mean, you just got to have uh, journalists, journalistic institutions need to recover some of their self-respect, which means recovering some of their norms. And the LA Times threw away that this week. Phil Klein, we have an LA Times on the board. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an utter disgrace. And if you look at the the photo, the photo said in the upper right hand corner, it said number one on it, 
and there was a thick stack of cards that he had, which made me wonder if there weren't also a lot of other questions. Yeah. Um, And the White House response was, we never, you know, the reporters never give us specific questions. I was intrigued by the word specific, which suggests you could just sort of say, I was going to ask him about X, Y, and Z without literally typing out word for word verbatim what the question is going to be. And it still has the same effect. So I've been a part of a a gaggle or two kind of randomly when I've been on trips. Uh, Obviously, I'm not covering, you know, Congress or the White House all the time. And there was always a little huddle among the the journalists who who were covering these figures all the time. You know, what are we going to ask? You know, this is the news of the day. If you get a if you get called on, be, be sure to ask this first, just so we make sure it's it's covered because it's an important topic. But to to do that level of coordination with the the person being covered or with the White House is insane. Maddie Kearns, L.A. Times or White House, more to blame. I, f- I feel like the White House actually, because I feel I feel like there there would be nothing to stop the L.A. Times saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah this we're, we're going to ask this," and then ask something completely different. But there's there's a desire to control and, and just make things easier for Biden in a way that I think is just pretty shameful. So yeah, it's totally inappropriate what the White House did, although it's a tendency of anyone in power to uh, to have more control rather than less. And so I, I'm with, on board with the, with the idea that's the, with the notion that's the LA Times that is more to blame for playing ball. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you have once again been reminded of the truth that you can never trust the government this week. Yeah, you can never trust the government this week. I mean, obviously, you know, I've sent a few texts to, to Tucker this week, week, you know, chin up and all that, that I'm sure the CIA is re- reading. But um, the real fact is there's been work being done on my street for six, seven weeks now. They've, they've basically pulled up all the civic plumbing and replaced it. And the work crews did a fantastic job. At the very beginning, they asked me, can we use your front yard as a staging area? You know, and they put, uh, you know, they put all this, you know, dirt on it. They put, you know, the, the entire blocks, curbs that were picked up and destroyed. <laughs> oh, no. They were put on the front yard. And I knew this was happening. And I knew it would destroy all the grass in the front yard. And I was <laughs> fine with that. I was fine with that because I agreed with them. Okay, just at the end. Don't put your grass seed down. I've got some stuff in the garage. It's kind of slow growing, but it's like a low input grass you're, you're a long guy. that do, you're a long that guy. doesn't you know doesn't require much watering. You know it, it does well in drought, but it's a slow growing thing. And so just give me the blank canvas at the end. And of course, in the last day, I turn away for thirty minutes, and they've completely seeded my yard with this cheap. High input junk, <laughs> covered it in hay, sprayed it in. And, yeah, you got government grass. Yeah, I have this. Yeah, low. I have this low grade government grass. It's going to outcompete my like ornamental Turkish sheep fescue, like whatever. I'm just raging. I mean, this is basically like, you know, there. There's like the Gulf of Tonkin the Milai incident, and then this, you know, and, and, and this will be recorded in history, government inefficiency. <laughs> Phil Klein, uh, Jim, Jim Garrity was, is similarly excited. So he talked about this earlier in the week, but you were also a Jets fan and, uh, 
they just signed Aaron Rodgers. As a long-suffering Jets fan, I can't tell you what this means because typically as a Jets fan, you watch a game, and whenever your quarterback throws the ball for more than, say, 20 yards, your heart skips a beat, and you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be intercepted. Or at the best case is that it's it's just overthrown uh, 15 yards so not even the defense could get it. Um, and just to, to get the most accurate passer in history, it, just to be able to watch games and suddenly like have meaningful football to watch in January, barring a major injury, I mean, it, it's, just, it's just amazing to be able to watch that, um, even if it's only for a year. I, I would have preferred if we got an offensive tackle in the draft last night, but Still, I'm that's still what the Titans. Sliding. That's what the Titans did. They got yeah. a, a offensive lineman. Yeah, they they hurt us. That that I, I was hoping they'd go quarterback, and so they'd save an offensive lineman for us. But that actually undermined us. So, Matty Kearns, you had a tussle over a table. This is a 21st century uh, problem uh, at, at a gala. Yeah. Day. So I had been invited, like fairly, yeah, fairly last minute to fill somebody's space at a gala that they'd bought a table and asked if I wanted to come. So, so I did. And so we're all sitting there and um, just getting seated. We're at table six and a lady comes over and with, with her husband and says, so we're at this table. Like, wh- like which one of you is, is not meant to be here. <laughs> and uh, of course I immediately am like, Oh gosh, am I not meant to be here? Cause I was like a last minute switch and but I have a name tag. So, um, and it's she was pretty confrontational about it. She went straight in like one of you is not meant to be here. Um, and then somebody at our table went, could, could you possibly be at table nine? <laughs> and she she had a, a closer look and she was, in fact, at table nine. Uh, and she looked very sheepish and, <laughs> and left. And this mortifying episode was over. But yeah, anyway, six and nine easily mixed up. Yeah, this will forever be known as the incident at table six. <laughs> I think it has that has a ring yeah. to it. So. I was down in Dallas the other day for an NRI event. I just love Dallas. L- love Dallas. Just the people down there are so awesome. They do things. They they're doing interesting uh, things. They're they're of course uh, tend to be very sensible, especially if they're showing up at a National View event. And it was a great time. With that, it's time for our editors' picks. MBD, what's your pick? My pick this week is Noah Rothman on uh, Anthony Fauci is still not being honest with you. Just Noah's been on this beat since he was at commentary as well, carrying it over here to NR, just getting at the doctor's fundamental dishonesty with all of us and probably with himself. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Michael's piece in defense of Tucker Carlson. I um, Thanks. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, I... I've definitely strongly disagreed with, with what Tucker Carlson has to say on things, but I appreciate hearing both sides of, of the story and, and having and, and trying to navigate what to make of it. So, Bill Klein? In keeping up with the Fauci and Wine Garden theme, I would just recommend our editorial, which is up now on our site, Don't Let Them Rewrite the Pandemic, uh, which goes through some of the stuff we were talking about. So I don't have a Fauci item to, to go with. Uh, instead, I'm going to go with the cover story in the new print issue by Charles Lehman, a uh, really shrewd guy who works at the Manhattan Institute, Why American 
lifespans are getting shorter, obviously an enormously important and consequential topic that he brings a lot of insight and wisdom to. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and you rebroadcast, retransmission, recount this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by our friend Shad filling in for Sarah in a pinch. Thanks to Phil. Thanks to Maddie. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to Free the Economy, the new podcast from CEI. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.